good morning, good afternoon and good evening, depending on when you're listening to the latest episode of the Racing News 365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Balve Baines and I'm joined by Asian correspondent Michael Butterworth and editorial director Dieter Renkin. Michael, it's so good to have you on the podcast again. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Balve. Uh, I've just uh, got off the high-speed train from Shanghai, so uh, it's a lovely day here in Beijing, and I'm looking forward to a Grand Prix that's somewhat in my time zone for a change this weekend. <laughs> that definitely uh, always helps. Uh, Dieter, and I can't believe I'm saying this, you haven't travelled at all from the last time you spoke last week. Uh, no, that, that's quite correct, Belf. Um, unusually so, and I won't be travelling Grand Prix-wise for a while because I'm not going to Australia. Our colleague uh, Aaron Deckers is down there. And then, of course, the Chinese Grand Prix was was cancelled. And uh, Baku, again, is, is Aaron's turn. So my next Grand Prix appearance will be in Miami. But I do have an awful lot of travel packed into the, uh, the period between now and Miami. You know, there's uh, some rally stuff that I'm doing. There's the uh, the wet race at Spa, my local circuit, 34 kilometres south of me. So, yeah, there's an awful lot of, of activity, but it won't be Formula 1 activity necessarily. That said, of course, the reportage will continue. Um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to the FIA exclusively two weeks ago. I went and visited the, um, the technical centre. I visited the Geneva headquarters. I was shown around the um, remote operations centre, which commonly known as ROC, which affected is a remote race control race director setup, and uh, so I'll be bringing um, an analysis of, of that visit. I can't wait to see you in the nightclubs of Miami, uh, Dita. Uh, but uh, moving on to, to what's happened between the last podcast and, and now, Michael, there's been a bit of a change over at McLaren, hasn't there? Yeah, McLaren, who've, uh, who slipped back a little bit in 2022, and they've not had the happiest of starts to 2023 either. One of just two teams, along with AlphaTauri, yet to score a championship point. And uh, technical director James Key is out. Uh, there's been a, a bit of a restructuring going on at McLaren. Three people are going to replace him, including uh, the Frenchman David Sanchez, who is moving over from Ferrari. We talked about him joining briefly last week. Uh, he's on gardening leave, so he's not going to join until January 20. 2024. Um, but yeah, it's it's not been a very good start to the season for McLaren. Uh, they admitted even before the season had started, even in February, uh, Zach Brown, the CEO, and Andrea Stella, the newly appointed team principal, of course, both saying that the MCL 60 hadn't hit its development targets. Uh, James Key, I thought quite interesting, he didn't really feature very much either at the launch or the official test. Uh, so maybe th there were rumblings behind the scenes there that uh, maybe he was sort of already on his way out um but they had um yeah i remember the start of last season they had that break problem at uh, at bahrain lando norris and, and daniel ricardo finished well down the order they only had one podium finish in 2022 after having had five in 2021 including that famous win at monza with daniel ricardo their first win in nine years mclaren had been on something of an upward trajectory from about 2017 onwards when Zach Brown, they had a reshuffle. Zach Brown was uh, moved to CEO. Andreas Seidel came in in 2019. James Key himself came in in 2019. And it seemed like they were on a bit of an upward trajectory. But since last year, that seems to have slowed down a little bit. They uh, lost out to Alpine in the battle for fourth place last year in the constructors. And uh, yeah, as I said, they've not started this year very well. And unfortunately for James Key, he's paid for that with his job. 
Yeah, no, he he, uh, he definitely has. That's really interesting about the Ferrari situation where they've bought over that personnel, uh, but he can't go obviously to till his garden leave is finished. Uh, Dieter, uh, what news do you do you have on, on that McLaren situation? I know you're very close with the team over at Woking. Well, I, I think it's a bit unfair to say I'm very close to the team. I mean, they're about uh, 250 kilometers from me, but I do try and keep my, my fingertips on, on all the teams, actually. And um, I was talking to some, some people at McLaren uh, late last week, and fundamentally the way that, yes, the team has got off to a poor start. But if we take the two races in isolation, I think the first one to look at is is in um, in Bahrain. Uh, obviously, they had a DNF for, for Oscar Piastri, and also Lando Norris uh, had a bit of an issue there. However, when we look at the next race, which is Saudi, um, that was opening lap, uh, opening lap uh, damage, etc., that, that scuppered both of them. Lando had had a, a, an accident, an incident in qualifying. Oscar, of course, made it into Q3, which proves that the car's got some inherent speed. And then they just had the sort of opening lap racing incidents, which dropped him down the order. So it's not as bleak as it appears. And certainly those two races, I don't believe, would be the reason for the change. As we know, David Sanchez was appointed some time back. Um, and I believe that what Zach Brown had done is had a look at the trend over three years and said, we, we're not really making progress. Yes, we know that our wind tunnel, our new wind tunnel is not on stream. Yes, we know that the CFD, the simulator stuff still isn't on stream. But fundamentally, the tools that we do have now should have us further up the grid. And above all, we should have a car that doesn't have various twitchy type of issues, which the McLaren does have. I spoke to James in Bahrain. He was saying that part of it was the floor regulation change which had affected them more than others maybe so look let's let's give james the benefit of the doubt a very good engineer very capable man but i think that ultimately from a, a chemistry perspective possibly it just didn't gel internally and uh, you know uh, james has left the team uh, i wish him well for the future i'm sure he will turn up somewhere i'm sure he'll be doing some sterling work there and let's see how soon mclaren can bring the wind tunnel the CFD and also the um, the simulator on stream, and above all, what sort of um, uh, input David Sanchez can can deliver. I personally believe he will start before January. That is the target date. But in Formula One, negotiations go a long way towards shortening these sort of things. It's interesting you mentioned the infrastructure there, Dieter. Uh, I mean, I remember Andreas Seidel, when he was still at McLaren, he sort of admitted that the team's infrastructure was lagging behind some of the rival teams. The new wind tunnel suffered from some delays. We're not expecting that to be online until sort of late uh, this year, which, is, which one would think would be too late to affect the development of the 2024 car. So it could be 2025 before we start to see the effects of that wind tunnel, which is also the last year of their current Mercedes engine deal so they might have a new supplier for, for the 2026 rule reset so i'm sort of wondering how long is it going to take for for mclaren to get back to a, a stage where they're going to be competitive where they're going to want, want to be in in contention for winning races again 
Absolutely, Michael. And you make a very good point. 2025 is also the last year under the current regulations. And I think that's also important because what it does do is it gives McLaren the opportunity of verifying the, the wind tunnel versus the CFD versus on-track performance, etc., ready for the 2026 car. I mean, let's not forget that fundamentally the, the, the current regulations have caught a lot of teams out. All we've got to do is look just up the road to, to Brackley at Mercedes. And again, at Mercedes, we're talking talking sort of probably 25 before they're able to sort themselves out. Uh, if we have a look at the various teams, I believe that Formula One has never been as unsettled as it is at the moment. And it's very interesting to have a look at it, regardless of where you start. If you start at the top, you've got Red Bull. Um, as we know, Dietrich Mateschitz passed away in October. There have been all sorts of reshuffles. There are constant rumors about Alpha Tauri being sold, about um, uh, Christian Horner uh, possibly uh, not not remaining in the position much longer. I don't subscribe to that, but those are the rumors that Helmut Marko may step back. We then look at Ferrari. I mean, a total, total mess at the moment uh, from what I'm hearing from sources. If we then go and have a look at Mercedes, who were third in the championship last year, we know that there's upheaval there. We look at at, at Alpine. They've got um, Gasly coming in. Uh, then we go to McLaren. We've just discussed that. We go and look at, at Sauber. They've got Andrea Seidel in, Fred Vasseur out. You then go and look at, at Aston Martin. Uh, the, about the only one that's sort of stable, believe it or not, ironically, is Haas. You've got Aston Martin. They've, they're also, you know, they've got Fernando Alonso come in. They've got Dan Fallows come in. Well, for Tauri, we've already discussed them. And at, at, at Williams, we've got James Valls coming in as team principal, and they don't have a technical director. So, you know, from positions one through 10, all of them have had some form of upheaval or headwind. And what's happening with McLaren, we hope that with the history, with the brand and how iconic they are, we hope they get back to, to where they're supposed to be. But moving on to other news, Michael, you mentioned before we started recording that Porsche will not be joining Formula One on the grid in 2026. What's your sort of thoughts around that? We thought they were going to join and now they're, they're not. Well, th this all started last year. There were lots and lots of rumours, and we talked about this a lot on the podcast last year. We wrote about it a lot on the Racing News 365 website. Uh, they were very, very heavily linked with uh, um, a partnership with Red Bull. Of course, Red Bull have their powertrains division uh, there. Um, uh, but it, it seemed as if Porsche wanted a bit too much. Porsche, it, it was rumoured they wanted 50% of Red Bull's F1 operation. Red Bull weren't willing to give that up. Um, we know that Porsche themselves, they don't have the facility to build their own engine. So they needed to partner with a team who have the facility to do that. That would tie in perfectly with a partnership with Red Bull because they have that facility there. It, it contrasts a lot with Audi, the other one of the Volkswagen Group brands who we know will be joining Formula One. Audi have the facilities to make their own engine uh, at their Neuburg facility in Germany. They are, they are gradually buying into the Sauber operation, which is going to become the Audi factory team in 2026. So it, it seems that the only way really that Paul Porsche might enter Formula One in 2026 is with some sort of rebadged uh, Audi um, Audi power unit. Um, 
but yeah, a Porsche, it's interesting. If you look at the, the, the history that Porsche has in F1, it's pretty checkered. You know, uh, the last time they were in Formula One was 1991, where they supplied a V12 engine to the Footwork Arrows team, which was a complete disaster. It was, uh, it was overweight. It was underpowered. Uh, the car was failing to qualify, was not finishing races. And they actually uh, withdrew from that, which is within half a season. And what was uh, clearly a very chastening uh, and very humiliating exercise for a brand as storied as Porsche is, because Porsche you know, 19 uh, overall category wins in Le Mans. They're hugely successful in other forms of motorsport. Of course, they have uh, categories like the Porsche Super Cup that runs in uh, in several different continents and supports the Formula One uh, circus. So Porsche have a huge amount of history and heritage in motorsport, but not in Formula One. And uh, well, now it appears as if uh, the, the Porsche name is not going to be in Formula One once again for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Michael, you know, uh, the the whole thing about Porsche is very, very interesting because wh- when I read the reports last week that Porsche are not coming into Formula One, uh, my, my first action was actually to check the date. And I was saying, whoa, but hold on, this isn't news, this is old. And if we have a look at the, the, the FIA uh 2026 power unit registration process fundamentally teams had to register by the end of november originally it was actually end of october then it was uh, pushed out by a month then it was pushed out by a few more days and until early december and Porsche had not registered at that point. And we ran the story that, in fact, there'd been a power unit uh, working group meeting in, in mid-December where the teams that hadn't registered were not permitted into the room, including Ferrari, and Ferrari then quickly registered. Porsche didn't. So it was pretty obvious uh, three months ago that Porsche were not going to be part of it unless, as you say, there was a, a remote possibility, and I really stress remote, that they could run rebadged Audi engines. Now let's just think about the commercial implications of this. That if they had taken the Audi engines and beaten Audi, Audi wouldn't be happy because they've gone and bought an entire team, namely Sauber. Equally, if Audi beats Porsche, what does that look like in the marketplace where the luxury brand within the VW uh, constellation goes and beats the ultra-sporting brand? (laughs) So all in, none of this ever made any sense. It may have made sense as Red Bull and Porsche coming in together, rebadging the Red Bull power units as Porsche, uh, Porsche providing input expertise, etc., and running it as a distinctly separate operation from Audi. But the minute they did they fell apart with Red Bull. The minute they didn't register, it made no sense whatsoever. And that's why I sort of got the feeling that this new story, so-called new story, that Porsche weren't going to be part of it, was, was dredging up the past for some reason. And if we look at this from the Formula One point of view as well, assuming we have 10 teams in 2026, and we may have more than 10 teams, and I'm sure we'll come on to talking about that in the, just a moment or two. If we have 10 teams in 2026, it looks like we will have Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, Ford, Honda, Renault, and Audi, all as power unit suppliers, six power unit suppliers for 10 teams. So from that point of view, that there isn't really a need for, for another one. We're not short, we're not short of, of power unit suppliers for the next, uh, the next cycle of regulations. 
and Cadillac coming in as a brand, of course, uh, if they do come in with Andretti. So we would have had potentially eight different brands, potentially 10 or 12, 11 or 12 teams. I mean, mathematically, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm sorry, but I, I repeat what I said earlier on. When I saw the so-called news story that Porsche weren't coming in, I checked the date to see whether this wasn't maybe December 1 last year. It seems like uh, everyone and his mother uh, decided to, to to get into Formula One in 2026. In uh, other more, more serious news, Nelson Piquet, uh, Dieter was fined for some of the comments he made against Lewis Hamilton. Uh, yes, and I think quite correctly so. Uh, you know, I mean, on the one side, I subscribe to to freedom of expression, etc. But equally, you know, there, there is a thing called decency. And what Nelson did, in my opinion, went beyond, well beyond the indecent. And um, I'm very, very pleased that this action was brought against him. And I'm very pleased that they've made it stick. It, it is a substantial fine. It's a punitive fine. Um, it's what you would call an exemption fine in other words are making an example of him and um, yeah uh, I think I sincerely hope that it, it teaches people out there that regardless of your opinion about somebody which you're entitled to hold you have to do it within the bounds of decency it, it, it is as a brown man in in the Formula One space it is great that he's he's, he's getting this fine and hopefully more importantly than that he, he gets an education that you can't say stuff like that uh, in the in the, public, in the public space so uh, Dita appreciate your your thoughts on that and, and equally Belv if I may say so he is a three-time world champion and therefore he was one of the, the Formula One's iconic figures and just that alone means that he should set a good example and and I don't believe he did that. Uh, so frankly, yes, I believe he got his, he got his due. Yeah. Um, so sticking on, on you, Dita, you mentioned just before we started recording some upcoming features that are coming within, within the F1 world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did allude to it, actually. It was the, the visit I made to the FIA about two weeks ago, immediately after Bahrain, in fact. I got back Monday night, and on the Wednesday morning early, I flew to Geneva, uh, very, very kindly hosted by the FIA. I spent two days there. I went through the um, the technical centre in, in Valerie, which is on the sort of French-Swiss border, so just across the road from, from uh, across the, the, the border from, from uh, Geneva. And I spent the day there uh, looking at both the technical center and the archive which was absolutely fascinating stuff really really fascinating um you know a uh, records going back to 1904, um, all the famous or infamous um, uh, scandals that we had in Formula One, the um, the Lotus double chassis from 1988, the Spygate, you name it, whatever there was, they've got all the records there. And then the next day, I was fortunate enough to be shown around the uh, remote operation center in uh, Geneva itself, a massive bank of TV screens, are they fully wired in? to all the stuff at the track. It's effectively the race control uh, duplicated uh, in Geneva on a remote basis, which will allow race control to get on with having a look at the immediate stuff. And they can then hand anything over to Geneva and say, right, we've got to look at the next lot of activities and whatever. Can you please analyze it and feed back to us? So, um, yeah, it is a step in the right direction. It will take time for it to bed in. But ultimately, um, I, it was 
very, very impressive to see that. And I'll be bringing a, an analysis of that, that rock, as they call it. So, Dieter, you mentioned that the rock uh, over in Geneva. So what's the difference between the, the race structure that we have during a, during a weekend? Okay, so basically, Belve, what we have at, at any Grand Prix is, first of all, you have the local organiser, which is the ASN. They supply the clerk, of course. They supply the marshals, etc. The race director takes over control of the actual sporting activity, um, but he hands over or delegates to the clerk, of course. So if there's a need for flags or whatever the case is, he'll tell the clerk, of course, or then tell the marshal. So you have a proper, almost military structure the race, the race director, uh, currently uh, Niels Wittich, uh, will have a look at it and he'll take certain decisions which he'll delegate to the, um, uh, the clerk, of course, and they will then execute those decisions. When there is a perceived, and I say perceived infringement, because it is not the race director or the clerk, of course's role to decide whether it's an infringement, all they do is they flag up an incident and say, we believe that there could be an infringement there, there or wherever. They then hand that over to the stewards. The stewards can then ask for additional information from Rock, from the race director, the clerk, of course, from the team, etc., and they will then look at it and take their decision. So it's almost as though the uh, race director is the traffic office on point duty, if I may call it that. If he sees somebody jumping a red light or whatever it is, they then write out a fine, but it's up to the magistrates or the judges to decide whether or not that was a traffic infringement or not. And the same applies here. The race director sees something that he thinks could be a breach. He hands that over to the stewards who are the judges, and they then decide. So when I hear uh, comments, particularly in, in Twitter world, etc., that, ah, oh, the FIA imposed this and imposed that fine. It wasn't the FIA, it was the stewards. And the stewards are frankly as distinctly different from the, from the race director as a judge is from a policeman. It's, it's always nice to, to hear the clarification between those different roles during a, a weekend. You mentioned it earlier, Dita, that there's been lots of confusion and I'm hearing it a lot on, in the social media world where people are not quite sure of what the, what the roles are. So, Dita, appreciate you, uh, you you're sharing your uh, sort of knowledge on that. It's almost hard to admit, but uh, we've been speaking for the last 20 minutes or so. There is a race this weekend. Michael, you mentioned last week that Piastri's, Piastri's debut home Grand Prix, uh, Australia. What, what, what's, uh, what's going on down there? Well, we've got the Australian Grand Prix coming up, the third Grand Prix of the year. As I said, I'm very pleased about this one because it's one of the uh, the two Grand Prix that actually start in the middle of the day for me, uh, whereas you guys will be getting up at uh, four or five in the morning to watch it. So uh, for, for once, it's at a nice time zone for me. I'm, I'm clinging on, Balf, to a, a crumb of comfort here because the last four editions of the Australian Grand Prix, the winner didn't go on to win the Drivers' Championship. Charles Leclerc last year, of course, for Ferrari. We didn't have an Australian Grand Prix in 20. 2021 because of COVID. The 2020 race, of course, uh, was cancelled just before first practice, the very first uh, race to fall victim to COVID. Uh, Valtteri Bottas won in 2019 and then Sebastian Vettel won in 2018 and 2017. You actually have to go back to Nico Rosberg in 2016, the last time the world's uh, championship winner of a given year won the Australian Grand Prix. So uh, if uh, 2023 looks like it's going to go the way it's going to go, uh, we've had two Red Bull 1-2 finishes so far 
Uh, I'm hoping we get a little bit of variety in Melbourne. And uh, looking at the early weather forecast, it looks as if we might be due some rain on uh, Friday and Saturday. And so uh, rain during qualifying on Saturday could really shake things up. I remember in 2005 when we had the the one-shot qualifying, and that really, really shook things up. And uh, Giancarlo Fisichella was a very, uh, no doubt, a very happy beneficiary of that as he uh, strolled to his uh, win from pole position. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping for a bit of rain on Saturday. Not sure if there's going to be any on Sunday, but uh, anything to mix the order up at Albert Park is uh, is always good with me. Well, they, they do call Melbourne the city of four seasons in a single day. And, and I was talking to Aaron Deckers, our, our colleague who's down there at the moment already uh, this morning, and I said something to him about this this particular four season thing. And he said, well, right now, man, it's one season in a day. He said, it's raining nonstop. And he says, it doesn't look likely to lift at all. And uh, I believe it's pretty heavy rain as well. So let's hope that um, it doesn't over rain because Australia has been given to floods, etc. But equally, let's hope that we have just enough to really spice up the the action. Equally, I always feel sorry for spectators. You know, these these guys go and spend five, six hundred dollars, and they sort of sit there all huddled up in raincoats and umbrellas, and can hardly see anything. And we sit back at base and out in front of our television, and we say, "Wow, wasn't that a fantastic race?" And the poor guys who indirectly paid for it <laughs> are sitting there drenched and you know huddled up and cold and freezing and whatever. So uh, let let's hope that it works out well for everybody for the competitors for the spectators for the tv audiences uh the people of melbourne people of victoria etc yeah let's hope for a, a great race and we'll be back here on racing news 365 next week with a post-race breakdown of the australian grand prix we'll see you then